0: From FasterMind.co, this is Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. I'm Dane Sanders. Converge is a show about that space, that tension between the stuff you make and making money or something valuable from your stuff. The show lives where creativity and business collide, giving all of us the opportunity to rethink how we work and live in the digital economy. Why do some websites work while so many others don't? I'm not just talking about making your site look pretty, I mean making it work in such a way that visitors you probably don't even know are actively telling their friends, who you also don't know, to come check out your stuff. Well, if you've ever wrestled with this for your own site, I certainly have, or you just feel like you could go further, that it isn't just where it needs to be, you're in for a treat. My guests today are Taylor Jones and Eric Brown, founders of Whiteboard, a very special kind of company. And as you'll learn, they don't just build websites. They help purposeful brands leverage the internet for good. How rad is that? Well, way before I met these two personally, I was that guy, discovering sites that were they were behind and actively sharing them with others because they were just so cool. And it wasn't just cool. Like, they functionally took me somewhere. And it wasn't until way later that I realized it was the same company behind all these great destinations. So I reached out and we actually have become friends through a number of common relationships. And as you hear what goes into these geniuses and what they create in their whole team, what they create in Chattanooga with such special projects, I hope you walk away with a very hopeful sense of what's possible for you. I'd love to start our conversation with you guys just sharing a little bit of your journey. How did Whiteboard come to be? And talk a little bit about what you, if I if I say the good, what does that mean for you? Reflect on that a little bit.
1: When Eric and I, we started Whiteboard, uh, which is a sort of design and technology studio aiming to uh, leverage the internet for good and, and help other people do the same. We started in college out of a, what we felt like was a calling to in some ways restore what we felt like was a toxic um, agency industry uh, in some ways. And and looking back now, you know, our perspective was probably a lot more limited than we realized it was at the time. But as every eager entrepreneurial college-age person does, you kind of think you've got it all sorted out. Uh, and so, you know, I think for us, our definition of good is largely informed by our worldview of uh, restoration and human flourishing. And so when we talk about good, we see that through both the lens of our work and the working, the process of, of doing the work. Uh, and so that's sort of the internal and external components. So for us, you know, good are, are things that help people to grow, help society to flourish, help humans to flourish uh, and, and ultimately bring about restoration, reconciliation. Uh, I think that's the. The narrative that drives, you know, the purpose behind what we do, Eric, do you want to add anything to that?
2: Yeah. And, you know, so as far as being a, a business called Whiteboard, you know, part of the thing that we're trying to do is, is leverage the Internet for good. But when we say things like leverage the Internet for good, that means we actually have to define our enemies, which is, you know, what is bad about the internet? You know, I remember when I was nine years old and dial up internet moved into the Brown household and I had AOL instant messenger. I would never talk to the girl that I had a crush on at school, like face to face. I would just converse with them on AOL instant messenger. And I remember my dad would like helicopter behind me, like, weren't you just with them at school all day? Like, why are you online chatting? Like, You know, to think about how much has evolved over, you know, the past 20 years of the Internet. You know, Facebook hasn't been around for 20 years yet. But yet, we've probably, every listener, probably, you know, us three on this interview, we've probably visited Facebook multiple times today just based on statistics. But then you have commentary on Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat. All of these social media platforms that we love are all built on addictive algorithms. So you have to ask a question. I read an article a few weeks ago that was, because Facebook's built on an addictive algorithm, is it bad? Because alcohol is also addictive, you know? And so like, so reconciling, what does it mean to leverage the internet for good? Well, there's a big part that we we are trying to filter and distill, you know, what does good mean? What's the difference between consumerism? in commerce you know because we know economy is a good thing we know sales are a good thing but we know consumerism we know the discount game you know it's like when you say there's a 50 percent discount and it's a limited time but then you get the same 50 percent discount tomorrow and the next day and the next day are these companies actually lying just playing a consumerism game so the question for us is just always soul searching saying are we contributing in a way that you know not only our clients are seeing results, and the companies we work with are seeing the efforts of good work. And these screens are ultimately a mirror into what they're doing on a day-in-and-day-out basis, and trying to, you know, present their ideas authentically to the other side of the spectrum. Which is there's plenty of examples of how the internet is ruining people's lives, and we can't ignore that as a creative and technology company.
0: I just want to launch into, you know, addictive algorithm alone. I mean that that is such a big conversation and the idea that screens are mirrors to what we're trying to navigate and commerce versus consumerism, all of these things might just warrant another conversation. I guess I need to point out one piece. You guys have been pretty successful at what you've done. <laughs> Whiteboard has exploded and in many ways I think it's become a gold standard for as you're describing design and tech studio, people, you know, lay people just say, you know, a web design shop, but because you have ambitions to go much further, it shows in the work that you put out. Can you talk a little bit of just a handful of some of your favorite projects you guys have had a chance to work on over the years?
2: Oh man. Oh, I'll come out of the gate. Go for it. Not a lot of people know this one. If you, uh, I remember one of our very first projects, I guess it was maybe not our first, one of our first projects, but it was early on, uh, we had a unique opportunity to actually work with Bitcoin Foundation. Huh. Uh, and this was think, 2011, 2012, I think, maybe 2014. We had the opportunity to rebrand uh, Bitcoin Foundation. Unfortunately, the rebrand and the website that we did did not make it because obviously Bitcoin as a currency just basically like died at one point. <laughs> <you know? laughs> the whole project, we got paid Bitcoin and had we had not liquidated it you know, and held on to today, I think it was... One point three million? Oh my alphabet. gosh. <laughs> two
1: point one million uh, when Bitcoin was at its Yeah, we got paid right before the bottom fell out in the last round and then now it's it's insane. We we actually use some of the bitcoins to buy some of our office furniture. So some days I walk
2: through the office and I'm like, that's a two hundred thousand dollar desk, that's a thousand dollar desk. <laughs>
0: but who's counting that's good
2: but that was super unique you know obviously in terms of we're bitcoin and we're cryptocurrency that was a super unique challenge just learning about that environment you know like when you think about regulation you know a lot of our friends are curious more about cryptocurrency than they are investing in it but kind of the consensus even amongst the financial advisors in our lives everybody knows crypto is the future just nobody knows when that future is going to be um so that was super interesting I'll add to that. We've, one of
1: the things we've been involved with for a while that has a really significant amount of purpose for us is ironically called Proposity, the combination of generosity and purpose. And it's a platform that essentially excavates micro, real micro needs in a community and lets people meet those very specific needs. Uh, right now, it piggybacks on Amazon. So imagine a social worker in your community is aware of a specific need. Let's say uh, a kid needs a pair of shoes and the family can't afford a pair of shoes. This need goes into the platform. It gets uh, sent out by a message to the constituency in that community. And then basically I order that Amazon item, but it ships directly to the social worker for immediate delivery. And so it's shortened the cycle and where many of these social workers would wait a year or 18 months to get funding for buying backpacks for a group of kids. We can turn that now into, you know, five or 10 days, turn on some of those real needs in the community and that's something we've had very great clients who came to us and and kind of wanted us to help figure out how to bring that to life. That's been a ton of fun. And I'll throw in one that may not on the surface come out of these conversations, but an early project that we did was with a guy who, uh, he travels around the nation talking to kids about the value of the sanctity of life uh, and about committing to live even in moments of difficulty and really just not even taking their own life. In fact, that's a sort of part of the story of Eric and myself, we have some family members who've been down that struggle before, and, and that's something that, you know, the, this guy, he, his name is Dean Sykes, and he uh, texts us often and, and reminds us how many kids have signed this pledge that we helped to create, and, you know, I think I'll just piggyback on this to say, and I realize saying, it that this can sound a little grandiose, and I don't mean it to, but I think Eric and I have always been far more motivated by the actual people that we get to work with, and our capacity to believe in them. Uh, than we are about the the work or the size or the scale, the magnitude. And before we hopped on the interview here, I know we were chatting about how timely some of this conversation is because we've been digging back down into those roots as, as we've been through a season of kind of growth and scale and adding new team members and taking on a lot more work. We've, we've really been asking this question of kind of getting back to that core of working with people that we sort of unconditionally can uh, believe in. Uh, and come behind. And I think that's been the most fulfilling parts of the work. It doesn't always look like a a logo. It looks much more like a person who we we've, we've been able to come alongside and kind of prop up. And I think you know as leaders, especially in the entrepreneurial or more risky space, it can you feel like you're on an island sometimes. And I think we get a lot of fulfillment out of sort of standing next to people in that position and sort of understanding that role, and then saying, "Hey, we're in this with you." Uh, and that's really what the heartbeat of Whiteboard is is that intentionality of belief.
0: These are massive, these distinctions you're making. And the examples are fantastic. By the way, the Dean Sykes site, is that available still out there?
1: It is. It's called UMatter. I think it's Us. And just throwing it out there, it's been quite a while since we uh, have made any uh, enhancements to that. But yeah, it's definitely still out there.
0: You guys are a certified B Corp for a reason. Do um, you give a quick comment on what that's about for you? And for some folks out there who don't even understand what certified B Corp is, how does that connect to all of these kinds of bigger than commerce aspirations that you guys are, are speaking to?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we, last year, part of our strategic plan was to explore, we talk about a lot about doing good in our world, but obviously, you know, that's also a catchphrase, if you will, you know, amongst, you know, just, it can feel like marketing language, you know, without any... And so uh, the real way to kind of parallel what a B Corp is, is when you go to the grocery store, you know, you see fair trade or you see the organic seal, you know, that like they've at least had to be vetted through some kind of process to say you know, this product is exactly what it's saying it is, and it's good for me, not bad for me. B Corp is essentially the organic seal or the fair trade seal for business. And so what we did was we went through six to seven month process, rigorous. Basically they have a team that essentially uncovers every rock of your company. How do you treat your employees? How do you treat your clients? Who are your clients? Who are your suppliers? Who are your partners? You know, for us, you know, we don't have a lot of There's not a lot of industrial need, you know, that we're trying to outsource to, you know, so for us, it's a little bit different. But yeah, it's, you know, Patagonia is the highest ranked B Corp ever. And I think out of a 200 point scoring system, they ranked 121. I'm pretty sure the average, you know, when you first take the test, the average company hits a 50, but you have to have an 80 point threshold to even be considered a B Corp. Uh And so, yeah, it was a way for us to say, Are we practicing what we preach? It was kind of like a third party investigation, if you will, to say, Hey, you guys are what you, you say you are and huge support. You know, number one, we learned a lot about ourselves during that process and had to surrender, you know, and, and in the end, like had to accommodate like B Corp standards, even in our partnership agreements. And so it even digs down into even the legal structure of of how Taylor and I operate and make decisions on a day in and day out basis. So it's
0: not like you get paid to become a certified B Corp. You're paying to have a third party come and do a bit of an x-ray on on your soul and make sure that you're being true to what you say you're going to be. Absolutely.
2: Yes. <laughs> it's given me such more respect to you know, like Patagonia, for Patagonia to be the scale that they are and still abide by B Corp standards, you know, for Etsy, you know, for Warby Parker, for these companies who who are on that threshold of leading in that way. You know, it's just mad respect because we're definitely not at the scale that those companies are.
0: Again, I love your aspirations. I want to break down this conversation into a couple directions. And I want to start with kind of your bread and butter business. You create amazing web presences for people. And I don't even know how to describe it. I was going to call it a website, but that felt too thin. And then I, because websites can feel like a commodity. I know you're wanting, you have bigger ambitions than that. I even know that you do things beyond the web. I guess for folks who are at home and they're listening and they're like, look, all I'm trying to do is create a storefront or all I'm trying to do is create a brochure and maybe that's the wrong way to frame it. It's not that that's all they're trying to do, but they haven't thought beyond that as the end zone. And you're in a conversation with somebody and you want to say, look, I want to explain the anatomy of a great web present. I know that you can do the commodity thing and and just go get a, a web builder or a drag and drop template thing, which by the way, I use. <laughs> so like convince me, talk me through why someone would go, no, I see an opportunity here to do more than just the veneer on top. Talk a little bit about the anatomy of a great web presence.
1: So I think the first thing is intentionality. And it can be easy to assume when you're talking to folks who run a web agency that we would fall on the, you know, you should build the biggest and best and greatest and most high design thing ever. But the first step in any great web presence is realizing that, you know, it's a tool for advancing whatever it is that you do, whether that's selling stuff um, that you're making yourself or whether that's building a multi-hundred million dollar company, At the end of the day, the site serves a purpose. And so the first thing that makes a great web presence is when you start with intentionality and you don't just kind of throw something together that doesn't make sense. You know, the next thing that I think helps to make a great web presence is creating it through the lens of really trying to put yourself in the seat of your user, your visitor and your customer. And so many people, uh, they don't do this. They, they build something for themselves, especially when you're a smaller group of people, smaller team, really even highly passionate, mission-oriented people take for granted that you are not your user and so you have to uh, validate every assumption you have to move beyond any kind of guesses you would come into that process with and create something that's made to serve them you know in the world we live in now things that are online are now the brick and mortar most organizations i think for, this was the first year that we actually recorded uh over the holiday s- season a higher percentage of the total volume of holiday online uh versus offline and the last Research that I read said they estimate more than half of all online sales during the holiday season were on Amazon. So just kind of think on that for a second. But the intentionality at which you create your online presence is the only way that people know you. The next thing is getting lots of feedback from people who would be those real users is certainly important. Uh, and the next kind of theming element is authenticity. You know, We are in an age where there's so much uh, falsehood, there's so much vanity, there's so much sort of putting on a facade. And what really makes a great online presence is when it tells the real story, not a false story, not a fake story when it's not overselling or underselling, but when it's being truthful. uh, And ultimately, when it when it serves a user, which is probably not may not be the way you would expect that question uh, to be answered. But it really doesn't matter if you're building a, a drag and drop site on Squarespace, or if you're building a large, you know, you think about going to a great restaurant that you love, you might love a restaurant that's a chain that's replicated. And all over the world, and every restaurant is virtually the same. But you still enjoy it. And then you might also enjoy going to a, a local restaurant that's extremely highly intentionally designed. You know, the fundamentals of a restaurant are pretty much the same everywhere you go. They've got to have a kitchen. They got to cook stuff. They got to serve it. They got to get it to you. you got to make their customers happy. But the ambiance and the experience that you have when you go to those different restaurants is really what makes the the difference in uh, in that experience. And so, you know, building the web is nothing really no different than that. It's simply about creating very intentional. Uh, experiences for people who are going to be connected to whatever it is that you're doing.
2: Yep. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the most brilliant name for a TV show is on Netflix, which is black mirror. It's amazing to me how many people still don't get that metaphor, but black mirror comes from the, what happens when you turn off your screen and it's just a black screen and you look into it and you see yourself you know so for us we're, we're constantly seeing web as a mirror into ourselves or a mirror into what we value you know not it's not just about what we can present on a home page of a website but internet also means what are we tweeting about how are we confronting conflict online or person to person anatomy for us really actually starts Dr. Leslie DeTernitone is kind of a godfather of sorts in terms of just incredible books on branding as from an academic standpoint. Um, I mean, he's written 500 plus page books on brands and the power of them. And one of the things that he articulates is uh, brand vision is at the center of what you believe the future environment should look like. Brand vision is at the center of values and brand vision lives at the center of purpose and he would essentially say that future environment values and purpose influence personality and that's when we talk about pixels and imagery and media it influences presentation and how we present what we do and why we do it and those three pillars influence how we position ourselves and that all depends on how crowded the market might be or if this is kind of a zero to one idea that you might be exploring
0: I'll be back with the rest of the conversation right after this short break. This episode of Converge is brought to you by White House Custom Color, the most customer-centric photo lab around. They just do it better. If you are a professional in need of any images in print, WHCC.com is your answer. Either use them yourself or make sure your photographer does. WHCC.com, the official sponsor of the Business of Creativity Podcast. Some of what I'm hearing and what you're saying is that in all of these efforts to be empathetically thoughtful to the customer or to really get clear about what is it you're trying to accomplish, that these are pretty high-grade, high-caliber skills that the average person like myself who's been given the ability to create a web presence, if I'm naive to all of these things and I go and try to just create stuff – I could be unintentionally narcissistic, make it all about me. I could be unintentionally just underperform. You know, I have these great ambitions in my mind or my head or my product, and I'm just trying to assert it in such a way that it's just, I'm off a couple degrees of calibration or I'm just off. And, and I'm wondering, am I get am on to a little of what you're describing, that when folks see the value that you guys bring, in addition to the great design aesthetic and the great copy and all that stuff, well, I guess that's integral to it, what you guys are selling is, look, we actually want to help you do what you say you want to do, but understand all of the facets that go into that kind of big project. Because it's a big deal to create, even though it's easy to put a web presence up, it doesn't mean that it's easy to put a good web presence up, (laughs) even with these powerful tools. Is that a fair way to assess it?
1: Yeah, and even, I mean, in our history, we started as a web shop, pretty straightforward. Web shop aimed at purposeful organizations. And we really quickly figured out wow, we've also got to do branding work because we can't build a great web presence for anybody unless their brand is strong and solid. You know, that led into other services where the, the intentionality and, and where you start in the narrative. And, and now in many cases, we find ourselves in conversations that are very similar to almost organizational counseling. Once you publish something online, especially on a website, uh, it becomes fairly firm. Now, the web changes, but that's kind of the The interesting thing about the Internet is once it's out there, it's out there and it sort of becomes part of the permanent record. And so it kind of forces that decisiveness on how you're going to say what you're going to say and how you're going to communicate with people. You know, one of the things that matters a lot for especially when you're a a really passionate founder type personality and especially one who who has a strong conviction as to the purposefulness of your work. There's a heavy pressure to kind of know what you're constituents want and to be able to deliver that to them. Um, and there's a sort of a pressure that, Hey, I should know how to do this. But vulnerability is a huge part of building a great online presence and simply asking uh, how your idea or your thing is landing on the people that's intended to land on. it. It's really amazing how many people are resistant to that idea of simply, you know, it can be as simple as, okay, I've got 300 people in my email list and I just launched a new site know we want to be polished and perfect but the reality is that just email those 300 people and ask what do you think how is this serving you what are you doing and that kind of feedback is how you continually improve and continually grow and i think that's important you know and even in in a much larger scale we might interview or survey thousands of people trying to ascertain that or do you know very dynamic uh, data capture, recording tools, and understanding user behavior. I mean, there's entire industries dedicated, entire consultancies dedicated just to that research piece, but it's all starts with the same basic premise of the vulnerability of asking, is the idea that I have, is it landing in the way that I want it to land? Is it helping people in the way that I want it to help them? And if you take that posture, uh, that's how you ultimately build something uh, that's great.
0: So what I'm hearing you say is that you started off with kind of this, you know, building a web shop. And then as you took your mission more and more seriously, it expanded the scope of what you needed to become very good at. And what I love about that is that's the story of everyone who's listening to this podcast right now is whatever stage they're at, whether they're just getting into it or they're kind of they've had some years under their belt or they've been at it for a while and they're really assessing What else? What's next? You guys are both helping folks do that, but are doing it yourself in real time. And part of that, I think, really connects to your company culture. I mean, you spend five minutes on whiteboard.is or whiteboard is, and it becomes really evident really quickly. A couple of things. One, you love Chattanooga. (laughs) Two, you love your people. And you have built a culture of something that just seems rare or at least kind of it's uncommon, but it's the kind of thing that when people see it, they go, Man, I kind of want to move to Chattanooga and get hired by these guys just to be around these people. A lot of faster mind, our efforts here are around the lonely worker, the community of folks that are largely me, myself, me, my laptop and a Starbucks. And when they see these kind what the culture you're at least putting on display, how true is that in real life? And what does it take to build the company that you guys have built?
2: Well, I'll first speak to Chattanooga and then and then Voyage. <laughs> so what not a lot of people realize is is Chattanooga actually has the fastest internet in the United States. So when it comes to engineers and retention, all you've got to do is give engineers really slow internet or, you know, we'll take them to you know, All they have to experience is slow internet to realize they don't want to be anywhere else without fast internet.
0: Have you guys read Ready Player One? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So you guys are the Columbus of Ready Player One.
2: Oh, yes. I yes, hadn't yes. thought of that.
0: I mean, I, I knew that Chattanooga had great internet, but it didn't occur to me that you're actually using it as a brand asset to recruit talent. That's great.
1: the nerds listening, we have 10 gigabit internet access in Chattanooga. You can't get that anywhere else.
2: Yep. So, so there was actually, uh, I think last week or the week before last week, there was a New York Times columnist actually came to Chattanooga to experience it and said, most cities he visits, uh, he instantly is like, no, I could never live here. And he was like, but Chattanooga surprised me. And then he mentioned, and he was like, and I already missed their internet. You know, so <laughs> it's definitely on purpose. But when it comes to culture, you know, I think going into this deal, we laugh all the time. So Taylor and I were college roommates. You know, there's a lot of sarcasm. There's a lot of history. You know, there there were a bunch of pranks that were pulled during the college years. And at the same time, too, like we just always took our friendship very seriously um, in terms of, you know, everybody says don't work with friends. And I actually say I'm thankful I didn't listen to any of those people because I would say friendships have been really the spark and the foundation for what Whiteboard was started with and still is. You know, for me, it was always... You have employees, you have a team, you have staff, you have payroll. We're recently going uh, walking a journey with one of our team members whose dad's been very ill over the past few months. And it's, you know, and the question for us is like, hey, do we just need to stop and like go through the struggle with them as employers? And you know, or, you know, or does business continue as usual? And I would hope that it's always the latter. You know, I would hope that like we're always just putting our people first and caring for our people because they're ultimately caring for our mission even in the midst of hardship. And so I think for us it's more so like, yeah, culture, obviously culture is a buzz term, but you know, I I remember years ago I heard the description that culture is just kind of the air you breathe when you walk into an area or walk to a company or, you know, or walk into a city. You just kind of feel the culture. And so even today we have one of our engineers is transitioning out for a new kind of life chapter and we were toasting her and she was in tears and it was hard because, you know, and she expressed that like she loves this place so much. And as a, as a boss, like that's the only thing I need to hear, you know, at the end of the day, of just saying, you know what, like she cares about what she's done here so much that it's hard for her to leave knowing that it's even the right thing for her to do even in the midst of this thing. That's powerful, man.
0: You mentioned earlier the word vulnerability, And then I threw the idea of empathy and these kinds of character traits. How important is vulnerability within your team culture? Like, I know it's an asset when you can leverage it with a customer base to learn about yourself. But how important is it as owners with your team to leverage vulnerability in an authentic way?
2: Well, it's always hilarious because uh, I guess – Typically, when we have team meetings, the days we have team meetings are also the day that I went and saw my counselor that day. So like i have like, I'm super vulnerable on those days because I'm just like I raise my hand. I'm just like, it's my fault. Everything's my fault. (laughs) (laughs) I'm broken. But yeah, you know, number one, the way our office is designed, you know, we have like sliding doors that open up 90 percent of the time, not 99 percent of the time. Those doors are always open so we can be a part of our team. For us, it's kind of this open door thing. You know, number two, like I'm 31 years old. I am in the bracket of, yes, you are a millennial, Eric Brown, you know, and I'm a millennial and I'm leading a millennial company and just understanding what those motives are, you know, understanding, you know, it's it's funny how often that Taylor and I are put in client meetings where we're simply, we're supposed to talk about a web design or a, a new digital product, but we end up talking about how do you lead millennials well? What does that look like? You know, and so... I think it's more so like our team knows that like even Taylor and I are figuring it out and it's within that journey. It's within that vulnerability that it's kind of unique how they trust us even more in the midst of uncertainty.
1: And I think it's been lately that even, I mean, for myself, probably Eric too, but I won't speak for him, but it's become okay to hold that position sort of on up to the vulnerability and not just in like, Oh, I'm I'm sort of opening up all my feelings to you, but you know, even the fact that like, that I don't have this all figured out. And that could just be my personality type, uh, which is a little bit more maybe strong and blunt than some other folks would probably be. And so you guys on the podcast are hearing me talk through my feelings too. But I, I think there's a vulnerability element that is critical. Um, and, and I think our culture, and I'll, I'll add to some color to Eric's comments that our culture has definitely gone through ups and downs. Um, and I think if you were to poll our team, You know, you get a largely positive take and there's a few people who probably would say maybe the culture's not so great for them. And that's part of the journey of trying to figure out what culture means. I think if I've learned any one thing in this whole, you know, when we started Whiteboard, the idea of culture was really just becoming a thing at work. Um, Even the idea of good. I'm I'm not saying that we were pioneers by any means. I think we just I think when we started Whiteboard a number of years ago, these were early ideas that were still all kind of hiding and nobody had the confidence to say, hey, you know, we we really think our business should exist for good. And now that's transformed into, I think it was BlackRock, you know, one of the big investment firms a couple of weeks ago said, we're not going to invest in anybody anymore unless their quarterly filings also come with a social and environmental uh, impact report. And don't quote me on that. I don't remember exactly who it was, but now the point I'm making is like, good and culture have become mainstream. They are now like the... Mandate culture is the byproduct of all your other decisions, and I think that sometimes the confusing part of that narrative, and I know I have felt this as a leader in a creative enterprise that is staffed by almost exclusively millennials at this point, creating culture is really hard. And sometimes it's like the culture doesn't feel like what you want it to feel like. And that has to come with a recognition that it's because of other decisions and behaviors that have been made. And the way to change the culture is not to try to force it. but you have to go back and, and say, like, what about the design of our organization, whether or not it's intentional? Right. Because we, we're equally as responsible for the unintended consequences of our actions and decisions as we are the intended consequences and actions of our decisions. So we have to kind of take a really deep look and say, what are the patterns in our company, in our team and in ourselves as leaders that are leading to this good or not so good culture. And I think, you know, the the culture conversation for us has been a deeply personal journey that it's still, I mean, it's still, we've, we've had conversations in the last two days about this. Uh, and sorting it out, and, and trying to define it, ultimately to systematize it, right? To institutionalize the culture more deeply.
0: Well, it's funny. Just a moment ago, Eric, you mentioned on your therapy days or counseling <laughs> days that you show up, and all of a sudden you're, <laughs> you're. Uh, what did you say? You're, you're more. It's all your fault because you know you're broken yeah. or whatever. It's funny. What What I heard in that was actually more a sense of, and even in your comments too, Taylor. What I hear actually was is really a sense of liberty, a sense of freedom. That if you're really free, then what's to hide? If you're really free, then of course you're responsible for everything, whether it's intended consequence or unintended consequence. We get to be responsible for those things. Is that too idealistic to say? It seems true to me in those moments when I'm most free, I don't mind taking responsibility. sounds like that's what you're inviting your customers to, what you're inviting your staff to, what you guys are modeling. Is that a fair way to put it?
1: Yeah, I absolutely think so. I think there's the moment of freedom when you're like, okay, no, I can actually influence this. I can actually do something about it. Right. Five minutes later is the, oh, wow, holy cow, this is a lot of
0: responsibility. (laughs) That's right.
1: I think that's the other side of it. It's not just the, yes, I get to, it's the fear that then comes in as an author that Eric and I uh, have always appreciated Stephen Pressfield and his book, The War of Art. The fake innovator is wildly self-confident and the real one is scared to death. And so when we're innovating in our cultures, that fear is present. And I tell people all the time, if you want to be an entrepreneur or a leader, you have to make fear your best friend. You cannot get rid of him. He is always present. And that's the way that you succeed by becoming friends, Uh, sort of the, you know, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. You have to be friends with fear. Uh, And that's the cyclical story of our journey so far. John, Muir right. <laughs> John Mayer was right. John Mayer yeah. was right. There's a friend that's misunderstood. Yeah. And I know the
0: hype is good. Well, it's funny. You mentioned Pressfield. Of course, that makes me think of folks like Seth Godin, who popularized Pressfield in many ways. But there's a sense in which, you know, when Seth says, we don't get rid of our fear, we learn how to dance with it. That's why my fear is actually personified as a woman, not as a man. But my sense is that it's still a get-to. In fact, it's funny, I just did the Alt-MBA with Seth just recently, and his course in the middle of it, at one point, you know, we're all exhausted, we're shipping these products every 72 hours for four weeks straight, and somewhere in the middle of it, he just sent out this video to our community and just said, I want to quit. I want to quit almost every single day. I want to quit almost every single day if it's a good day. And then he goes on to talk about what you're experiencing right now and the overwhelmness of it is probably an indicator that you're on to the right stuff. It sounds like that's what you guys are on to. Whether it's you know the anatomy of great web presence, or the anatomy of great company, I think you're really speaking to the anatomy of a great life. There's a sense in which you guys are, as you're living this out on a personal level, you're trying to replicate it in your venture, in your project, as well as have that benefit our culture and society. If what I'm describing sounds, even if it feels flattering, diminish that part, uh, just get right to... In your efforts to create a great life for yourselves, or as you're talking to people right now, and they're having a chance to have you in their ears in a very kind of focused, curated way, how would you speak to a friend about what it takes to create a great life?
2: As a husband and a father to a five and two-year-old, I'll speak from that lens first. You know, I think... Part of the uniqueness of my profession is seeing through the lens of the of the world that they will grow up in. You know, like Taylor and I have this debate all the time, but we're pretty certain. You know, Ella and Owen—they're probably not going to have to ever take a driver's test to get their license. You know, I mean, the only thing stopping a Tesla from driving down, you know, a parking garage and, and picking us up in front of our offices and taking us home is regulation. At this point, the software already exists you know i think about how this next generation i think of my children of what's the world that they're going to live in and how are they going to steward it well because lord knows like they're going to be inundated with so much more opportunity for screens than i ever was am now now it's going to be interesting to see if the pendulum swings of course like Are they going to be able to navigate it much more naturally than we are today when it comes to just digital addiction, addiction to email, addiction to the dopamine rush, you know, all those different things. But obviously, I'm in this space ultimately thinking about them every day in terms of how do we, how do I steward a small piece that I have dinner with every night to do well in this world too, or at least to pursue it. For me, it's, it's being vulnerable with them and what I'm learning. You know, for me, it's a a great life is not remaining in the comfort all the time. A meaningful life is being able to work hard and play hard. You know, a meaningful life is, you know, my tradition for me is I go out, I try to go out, side at least once a night after my family goes to, I'm typically the one who's up past when my family goes to sleep to go outside and look up at the stars, just to be reminded that like this thing is way bigger than me, you know? And so I've really tried the meaningful parts of life. I've almost created these small traditions for myself to like stop, even in the midst of the rush, even when the inbox feels overloaded to just stop and appreciate what's happening, to stop and appreciate like, holy cow, I've got a team. You know and we worked for that you know but some people are still by themselves and it's been years you know and other people have been in this journey for 10 years and don't feel like they've moved an inch in their space but they still feel compelled to do what they're doing because there's this there's this itch that they have to scratch to keep going and to keep pushing and for me it's like it's the tension in all of it is the good thing and i think the fight against the tension is when things can get cloudy or think or you know or the burnout can come and so we're always just, I'm always just trying to find the right perspective to think about the situation at hand, how fortunate I am to have people on our team that believe and are pursuing the same things that I am. And we get to do that together, you know, and at the same time too, like thinking about what that means for the next generation is just as compelling too.
1: Yeah. I think meaningfulness is, is in who you do that life with. I think that's an easy thing to say and a really hard thing to act on. You know, by nature, if you have a family, that's the first step. But many people aren't very good at even being with their family, myself included in cycles of life. I have an amazing, kind, patient, generous wife and a beautiful little girl who is just a bundle of joy. And you know, in this season of life, I found so much deep fulfillment there and in that responsibility. Um, Eric was mentioning earlier, you know, a big part of the beginning of Whiteboard was a really a desire to work with friends, to resist the cultural norm of going to work every day with people that you don't know and you don't really care about and you're not really doing life with and kind of grinding away. I think the grind is much more fulfilling when you're doing it with others. There's a, a book called The Culture Code that I've been reading recently that talks about really highly elite teams, Navy SEAL Team 6 and a Jewel Thief team and all these really exceptional teams. And and how the dynamic of those teams is very different than the common uh, perception of a a corporate or uh, organizational team and how they work together. I'll let you guys read that yourself to dig into it. But I think the withness part is really the key to fulfillment. And I think that, you know, for us, that's in the people that we work with in our office every day, and the people that we work for, there's a a withness there and, and a and an alignment that's necessary for that to, to be fulfilling that I think is, a, is definitely the source for me in building a fulfilling life. So I think if life is is not very fulfilling, the first place to look is at the people that you're doing it with and to try to change that. You know, sometimes it's being part of a just sort of a volunteer participation community of some kind. Sometimes it's changing the place that you work. Uh, sometimes it's shifting the kinds of clients that you work with, maybe shrinking the size of your business into a much narrower focus. That, but with people that you know are fulfilling to, to work alongside. Um, and I had that fortune in college with Eric to meet a great group of people that was fulfilling to do life with, and then start this journey together. And certainly since then, you know, some people in that community have, have taken different directions as opportunities have come to them, but. For us, I think the the people, at least for me, the people is the place where the fulfillment usually comes.
0: You know, one of my favorite things about you guys is how you share, you know, your medium articles, your blog on perspectives, this new project that's just coming out, manners.io. Talk a little bit about manners. I think this is so cool. I think Funks will love it.
2: Got to give props to William Wilberforce in terms of the title. But one thing is, as a, as a parent, uh, you know, I, I remember election night when President Trump was elected. I remember looking at my Facebook feed and like just being completely overwhelmed and completely disheartened by like the political discourse or, you know, digital atomic bomb that was happening in my Facebook newsfeed and, you know, just like. As we all know, like that night was crazy in terms of just the political banter that was happening on all these various social media channels. And I had a thought that night of, I'm gonna teach Ellen Owen how to treat another human, like face to face, you know, in terms of etiquette and manners and just to treat people with dignity and respect. But on the flip side, like how am I gonna do that as a parent, you know, screen to screen? And obviously there's so many anecdotes in our culture of, you know, cyberbullying, spam bots, you know, you name it. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of news sources or articles that you can read today about how people have just taken advantage of the Internet or use the Internet for really bad things. And so uh, Reformation of Internet Manners was more so a kind of an exploration of how can we actually start bringing a framework of what great dialogue or even self-worth Looks like on the internet. So literally, I, I found this like good manners chart used in the 1800s um, that was used in schools uh, for you know teaching kids how to behave and kind of like paralleled that history to 21st century in terms of what would the rules be for online etiquette. You know, some of those rules live in on followings. You know, or, you know, or on followers. And you know, and one of the rules is. Don't let yourself be attached to who follows you. You know, like it can be as simple as that. To, you know, an online debate. Like don't as often as possible. You know, <laughs> because Lord knows it's a black hole. That most of the time, when you get into trying to debate somebody online to change somebody's mind online, is a really hard thing to do in this day and age. It, it explores a lot of those different ideas, but more so, just like what does it look like to treat each other with dignity and respect online, and. And obviously, you know, you, you don't have to look very far to find bad ways people are communicating in social media.
0: Well, my respect for both of you is extraordinary. I am so moved by what you've done and also how you invite the conversation. I know you off air, you mentioned that you guys were eager to receive feedback from folks on various things, whether they send it to hello at whiteboard whiteboard.com is, or Taylor at whiteboard.is, or Eric at whiteboard.is, Eric with a C, what kind of feedback would be most helpful for you when you guys think about engaging the folks who are listening to this conversation?
1: We're just always looking to build new relationships with people who uh, connect with the sentiments that we feel in our work. I mean, especially when you're talking about kind of the the entrepreneur sitting in Starbucks with their laptop, there's a lot of loneliness and isolation that occurs there. And, you know, we're all... We all have busy schedules. We all have lots of things to get done and obligations and responsibilities. But there's a huge amount of value that comes from just that witness and endorsement of "Hey, we're all in this. We're all in this together." Uh, so I think, if anything on feedback, you know, if anybody who's listening has a disagreement with anything that we've said today or a different perspective, we'd love to hear that. Anything about you know, sort of cultural paradigms that relate to this, or just simply, you know, connecting to say, "Hey." You know, I'm feeling the same thing you guys are feeling, and, uh, you know, we just love to kind of sort of virtually shake hands. That's definitely the kind of thing that we would uh, to love to engage. Yep.
0: Amazing. Well, I can't wait to see you guys in a couple of weeks. We'll all be together down in Nashville. Absolutely. In the meantime, on behalf of those at home who are listening in, thank you guys so much for taking the time to to share and, and really invite us into a deeper engagement with our virtual lives and our physical lives and maybe even our spiritual lives. So thank you so much for for that
2: invitation. Absolutely. And thank you for the invitation as well. Honor being here today. Yeah, it's
1: been a great honor and privilege. And I look forward to seeing you in a few weeks, Dane, and uh, wishing the best of luck to everybody who's... Uh, listening in, and you're certainly in our thoughts as we all go through this journey together.
0: This is episode three, season four of Converge, the Business of Creativity podcast. Converge podcast is brought to you by FasterMind.co, where we help entrepreneurs go from knowing to doing. Get started free today by finding out your FasterMind owner score. Go to FasterMind.co. Music for this episode provided by TripleScoopMusic.com. What does your story sound like? This episode was mixed and produced by Podcast Fast Track.